Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. On today's off-topic discussion, we discuss my experience getting tested for COVID-19 and what that was like. We share our current content consumption on the content circuit, and then Brett dives into the beloved and epic comic strip Calvin and Hobbes and its fascinating and reclusive creator, Bill Watterson. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Before we get started today, Brett, I do want to do a little house cleaning. I want to thank my friend Cody for helping me out with our audio quality. He spent uh, almost an entire day working with me remotely to help me improve just the system and the process that I was using to record and to master the audio. And so, listeners, if you think that our show no longer sounds like I'm recording with my head inside a trash can, you can also thank Cody. So, thank you, Cody. Well, thanks, Cody. Appreciate it. Thanks, Josh, for getting your head out of that trash can, finally. It yeah, does sound it's, uh, Sounds like I have a human voice now instead of a robot <laughs> voice. So, speaking of, yeah, I heard you got, uh, got some testing done. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about I got a COVID test last week and I just wanted to kind of run through what happened, the process of like getting diagnosed and then having to go get the test and then what the test was like. I know that, um, I know that when, you know, there's uncertain times like we're living in right now, hearing a personal story like this about someone who goes and gets the test or has to, you know, go through an experience that seems like it might be a little intimidating or scary. I know it helps kind of like ground me personally, you know, it kind of gives it like a human face and, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to project myself into having a scenario like that maybe happening to me if I hear somebody else doing it. So I want to do there's it as a little bit of a, no, there's no better trusted news source than the content clearinghouse. That's right. Now, just to be clear, we are not a news source. We record these <laughs> weeks and weeks ahead of time, so we are very off of the news cycle, but hey, we're doing our best. So it, this was last week. Um, actually, when we recorded our last episode, our Train to Basan episode, uh, you may have been able to hear it in my voice, but I was starting to feel really sick and lose my voice that night. And then, uh, But the show must on, go on. Exactly. The most important thing is that the content clearinghouse gets recorded. That's right. So I pushed through. And then that night when I was uh, falling asleep, uh, I was just starting to feel like real achy and fevery. So in the middle of the night, I got up and I told my wife, I was like, hey, I'm going to go sleep in the, in the other room because we're you know right in the middle of this lockdown period. And so you know, it's easy to get a little worried or paranoid about even something as basic as just having a cold. So I went and slept in our guest bedroom. And then the next day, you know, I, I was still feeling bad. So I wore, I wore gloves. I wore a mask. I was basically like quasi quarantining myself in the house. And my wife, Melissa suggested that I do a, a telehealth call. So it was, uh, it was Sunday. And the only thing that was open was urgent care. So I called them. And the interesting thing was that, you know, they told me like, we're not seeing anyone in house. So they did a telehealth conference over zoom. 
and it took about you know 15 minutes and i didn't really have the covid symptoms you know, i didn't have any of the upper respiratory i didn't have the loss of smell or taste i was pretty sure that i didn't have it but almost her immediate reaction was like okay here's the testing site we're putting you on the schedule you need to be there you know either Monday or Wednesday, those are the testing days. So you need to be there and they're going to be waiting for you. So you must have had some symptoms then that were similar enough or at least serious enough then to warrant getting tested, I imagine. I mean, you sounded terrible. I talked to you that that day on the phone and uh, I mean, no offense, but you sounded like shit. Yeah, man, I, I was feeling really bad, but... I was worried about you. The crazy thing with COVID is that there are these you know, there's like floating symptoms that could apply to anything, you know, like a fever and a cough and body aches. I mean, like that's the stuff that you get with any sickness, really. You know, if you get the flu or if you get a cold or if you get pneumonia, it's like all those, you know, those are the symptoms that always apply. And so I didn't have like those specific COVID symptoms, but that was enough just that I had a fever and body aches. So Anyways, I uh, I had my I had the test. It was you know go either Monday or Wednesday. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go tomorrow and get it out of the way. So I left early. I got to the testing facility 30 minutes before they opened, and there were like four or five cars already in line. So I pulled up in the line, and I'm just sitting there waiting. And while I'm wa- while I'm waiting, I'm watching the um, the testing. It's a mobile testing bus. And it's just this urgent care bus. And every once in a while, these people are kind of like milling around the outside. A lot of them were in like personal protective equipment, PPE. But it was strange seeing there was like one lady. She must have been just like, I don't know, like the administrator for the entire system. You know, like she's kind of, I'm, I'm assuming working the back office stuff. But she's just walking around in a hoodie. And, you know, it was it was really strange to see people in full testing, secure, like safety equipment. And then her just walking around on the outside, just as if nothing was up. Mm. So I wait in line. My turn comes up. I pull up. The uh, the lady like knocks on my window, and then I roll it down. And she asks me my name and birthday. Checks the list. There I am. And she pulls out the uh, the nasal swab. So you know, I had heard. I like that, that you made her knock on your window. Like you, <laughs> I, she walks up I and make her keep the window rolled up until she knocks. Okay, sir, sir, you can roll down the window. She, she looks like she knows something. I don't know. I don't know if I want to let her in here. But um, I was wearing mask, gloves, and everything because if I was sick, I also wanted to protect her. Right. Definitely. So uh, roll the window down. I pull my mask down, and then she does the the nasal swab. And I was under the impression that they were going to have to swab both nostrils, but it was just one. And I'd also heard that the nasal swab was, you know, pretty painful. But honestly, right at the point where I felt like I wouldn't want them to go any further and I wouldn't, you know, it's about to stop or about to start hurting, she immediately pulled it out. And that was it. She was like, okay, thank you, Mr. Evans. You can go on your way. We'll call you in three to 10 days. And I was already planning on just like, I was going to stay at home, quarantine myself until I got my tests. But, you know, they were really on the ball with it. It was, I think it was like a day and a half and they called me back and they told me I'm negative. I pretty much knew that though. Uh, but it was just for anyone that has to get a test, you know, don't, 
don't stress too much about it. It's not that it's not that invasive. It's not that big of a deal. And you know, it seems like there are a lot of security systems in place to protect the people administering the tests. But it's you know they they kind of give you your space as much as they can, and it's just in and out, and you're done. So anyone that's you know has to go do it, you can just rest assured it's not that bad. That's that's really good to hear, and I'm also glad that you're okay and you don't have it because I have been hearing about all these strange, uh, you know, the the it's I know it's rarer um, and it's relatively uncommon, but for young people to have pretty serious reactions, and like I've, I'm hearing about strokes now too, like young people are having none of the respiratory issues, but they'll have like strokes or like mini strokes and they think it's from the coronavirus. So, you know, obviously this is, um, an ongoing, uh, um, changing fluid situation and we are not <laughs> your best source of medical news, but I really do appreciate you sharing that Josh. And I really am glad uh, that you don't that you don't got the the covid man it's scary you know it, there was it was really strange like a strange sense of relief but also uncertainty because i got the negative test back and usually when you if you've ever been tested for anything you're usually waiting you want to hear the results and when you get the results you're like oh thank god okay that's like that's behind me. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But like with COVID, really all this test was telling me is that I hadn't come in contact with someone that had COVID yet. But from my understanding, you know, like with how prevalent they think it is, it seems like it's going to touch everyone's life at some point. And so I, for now, we're still pretty much locked down for another couple of weeks. So I feel safe and secure, but it's, it's going to be interesting what the world's going to be like when we get back to normal. You know, like I know that we have taken on all these new, uh, just like security techniques for dealing with anything that comes in from the outside world. Like when we do groceries now, we will order our groceries and we'll have them like delivered curbside pickup and then we'll bring them home. We'll spray everything off with like a bleach water mix and then uh, let it sit outside for three or four hours and then scrub it all down and then bring it all inside the house. Wow. So I don't know. Have you guys had any like strange new additions to your routine since this has happened? Well, I mean, I am pretty much um, isolated to the point where I like the last time I went to the grocery store was the first time I'd left the house in probably 10, 12, 14 days. So that's pretty unusual for me. And I'm definitely feeling it, you know, and I don't want to be somebody that, you know, complains about um, being stuck inside and how, you know, like, oh, I can't handle this. Because, I mean, it's like I got Netflix. I got a stack of Calvin and Hobbes books. I got podcasts. Um, I'm in a beautiful place. There's wildlife around. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not horrible right but at the same time i i have to acknowledge that i am a social person <laughs> like most people we we really need uh some human connection and and so yeah i mean i feel like i'm i feel like that's been having the biggest effect on me is just like lacking 
um, that social connection. Um, Bree, my wife, was at work, and she just got home after being on a trip for like uh, maybe seven days. And I mean, she um, she was gone for a little bit longer than a usual trip. So now that she's back, I'm feeling a lot better. But um, but I I ha- it sounds like you're doing a lot more with your groceries than I than uh, we have been. Um, I have seen somebody actually on Instagram that like was soaking their vegetables and their fruits and stuff in the sink with a lot of um, uh, like detergent or uh, dish soap. And they were like soaking it and scrubbing it. I mean, I, I'm washing my vegetables quite a bit, but I, I haven't been. I don't. I, I don't really want to soak my food in uh, soapy water. Is I mean, is that yeah, we're not soaking anything okay. that you know that we actually eat. We're we're basically cleaning like the outside of boxes and bags and stuff. Gotcha. And then okay. We, you know, with same kind of cleaning that we would do for any vegetables, but we're really like if we get like an Amazon delivery or something now. We are leaving it outside for a while, so if anybody wants to steal our stuff, just know it's on the front porch. <laughs> and then, uh, and then we are when we open it up, you know, like take it in the garage and open it with gloves and mask on. And then, if it's something that is packaged, we we'll also spray the package down. We have like our bleach water solution in the garage, so it's like, man, it's like this this big long drawn out process just to get like a delivery or groceries and yeah we do that I, we wipe it down with with lysol wipes yeah i don't think that's going to change in two weeks when you know the arbitrary stay-at-home order is lifted or you know if it's even lifted then oh it's, no there's there's going to be uh, i mean i'm sure that when they do lift the shelter in place or stay-at-home orders you know, it's going to depend on the state. It's going to depend on the uh, county even. But, it, yeah, there's going to be social distancing, restaurants. There's going to be disposable menus. People are going to be wearing masks that you're going to be, you know, having an empty table between tables. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. And this is all, once again, a lot of conjecture based on the kind of uh, news content that I'm consuming. But, um, yeah, I mean, things are not going to look normal and and in some cases, like that might not be such a bad thing. There might be, my hope is there's going to be something positive that comes out of this uh, that we just can't really see yet because it is a scary time. I mean, there's where, you know, where the death toll in the United States is now over, over 50,000. So I'm, I'm really hoping, I'm hopeful for um, the light where, you know, every cloud has a silver lining and, and, um, you know, a person's mistakes can actually end up being the the reason that they found success. I mean, I'm hoping that uh, this in some way is going to bring us together as a community or as a country or even as a, as a species. <sighs> it's weird that staying away from each other in physical proximity could be considered bringing the species together because that's really like right. what the... <laughs> That's really like what humanity standing together is represented by is us being apart from each other. Right. It's, it's very bizarre. It is bizarre. Well, have you added anything to your content circuit since you do have a lot of uh, sheltering at home like me, a lot of isolation, a lot of uh, descending into madness? 
actually, yeah, I have got, well, of course I have. I mean, it's like all I can do is consume content these days, but, um, Netflix recently released season four of Better Call Saul. Have you watched Better Call Saul? A long time ago, I started it, and then something got in the way. But oh my god, I was such a big Breaking Bad fan, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to check that out. Well, Better Call Saul is like they took what they learned from Breaking Bad, and they've created something that, in my opinion, it's more beautiful just visual visually the writing i think is better than breaking bad i've kind of felt like in the beginning it's like where can they really go with these characters but you know they've chosen to focus on uh saul goodman who in better call saul it's a prequel so he's his name is jimmy mcgill you know and watch the show to figure out you know why he has a different name because it's really interesting that also focuses on gus fring who if anyone's watched breaking bad knows he was you know the he was like the meth kingpin for several seasons. Yeah, the chicken and then guy. Mike, Esposito. Exactly. And then Mike Armitrout. I his name during the uh, Mandalorian episode, so I know it now. Yeah, he did have a cameo there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Mike Armitrout, who is like, uh, you know, he was Gus Fring's kind of like his, his fixer. And those three characters, I mean, they're just so interesting. And the the really compelling thing about it is, when Better Call Saul starts, those three characters are so well developed because they've had, you know, three, two to three seasons, depending on which character we're dealing with in Breaking Bad to completely develop the character. So when Better Call Saul starts, those actors, uh, Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul Goodman, and Giancarlo, Giancarlo Esposito, who plays Gus Fring, and Jonathan Banks, plays Mark Mike Armitrout. Those guys know those characters inside and out. But it's funny because watching the show got me on a Breaking Bad kick because those guys are so interesting. I'm like, I want to go back and rewatch Breaking Bad from Saul Goodman's first introduction, which is in season three. And now I've been spending the last two weeks or so watching everything. I'm like two episodes away from finishing Breaking Bad again. And what's what's so crazy is that you can see that when they first started Breaking Bad, Bob Odenkirk did not really understand who Saul Goodman was yet. And Gus Fring, Mike Armantrout, they're all like a little half-baked at the beginning. And as they get further and further along, you're like, okay, these are the characters I'm familiar with. And you know they've got all their character traits in place. And it's funny to think that if you watch the shows chronologically, Better Call Saul first and then Breaking Bad, when you know when the jump happens from the end of Better Call Saul to Breaking Bad, you're like, man, what happened to these guys? It's like they all forgot how to act for you know, you know, <laughs> six months worth of show, and then all of a sudden they're back to like kind of where they left off in the timeline. So it's really uh, it's crazy to see it if you watch it in its chronological order. It really is. Yeah, it gives you a, kind of a peek behind the curtain of how those guys develop the characters. That's super interesting. That's something I love about consuming content is kind of seeing, um, I don't know, seeing like the development of characters or when actors like really figure out or the writers really figure out what they're going for or they like hone it in and you can like see that change. And it, it kind of makes me feel even more a part of the story than it does like uh, taking anything away from that illusion. 
So are you saying um, I shouldn't watch Frasier before Cheers? Is that I would not I would not even <laughs> begin to speculate on two shows I've never watched before. Because <laughs> I I think Frasier was another successful spinoff, and so it might be like a similar kind of thing. They I I have no idea. I've, Cheers! Is I'm sure it's time. the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are Yeah. What are you twenty? What are you talking about? Cheers for. Uh, what about you, man? Have you had anything new? Uh, I've been watching Community, and oh my god, I love it so much. It's a, uh, it's on Netflix now, so I can just binge watch it. I don't even I don't even remember what it used to be on, or I don't know. It has it has some wild and crazy sordid tale about getting canceled. They're always on the verge of getting canceled, and then Yahoo Screen brought it back and. But I have no idea what network it was first on, but it is it's just a hilarious comedy and it's I don't know, I just um feel like even though it's hard to stay away from the kind of darker content that I seem to be naturally drawn to, I think it's good to have something that's like a little more lighthearted, a little silly, a little fun. And I went to community college, so it's uh it's very fitting. It's really over the top, but not that much. So, yeah, you've been you've been hounding me about community for like two weeks now, and I'm gonna that's that's next on my uh, in my queue. Once I finish Breaking Bad, I'm gonna go and give it a a whirl and see if it grabs me the same way it grabs you. What is it it's, that you like so much about it, though? Like, is it from the clips you've sent me? Like, the writing just seems almost too clever for its own good, which I, I can definitely see that being interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think some of the like ways that it explores different genres, um, like they'll have kind of a Western themed one or like a documentary, like a civil war documentary themed episode or like a star Wars kind of, they explore some star Wars tropes, but one of the characters, um, it kind of he loves television he has issues uh he has problems connecting with humans like he lacks some kind of empathy or he's on some spectrum or you know he's just psychopath no definitely not a psychopath um but just kind of like has trouble bonding with people but uh but he always kind of sees things through the lens of entertainment, which I'm sure as a professional contentologist, you can appreciate. And I mean, he's just a brilliant character. Um, and I think he's, you know, he, there's so many people in the main cast that it, it seems like a bunch of background or side characters being brought together. And they're all really like sharing the burden of being the lead um, but I mean, it, it's, it's hard to describe, man. It is something special. It is, it is genius. Um, so yeah, I'm rewatching the, the whole series right now and it's, I feel like I've, it's a little over consumption right now. I need to, I need to balance it out a little bit more, but it's kind of hard when you don't have a whole lot of other things to do. Don't it's talk to easy. me about overconsumption in my 112 episodes of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad in the last two weeks, buddy. Oh, boy. All right. Well, <laughs> the other thing I was listening to recently is a podcast produced by the New York Times about overconsuming content. Oh, how appropriate. <laughs> what is that called? Um, I don't remember. It's a spinoff of The Daily, but um, 
uh, I'll let you know if it's uh, if it's something worth checking out. I'm already kind of gripped by the story, um, but it's the the very first episode talks about the computer engineer, this French guy that designed the algorithm that made YouTube even more successful. And it was right about the time. Uh, so they kind of went from clicks that uh, produced a lot of clickbait problems to related videos or like using different um, a different algorithm to figure out what what other videos that are similar would interest you instead of just like popular videos with the most clicks. And that was also around the time where they moved from like a 15 minute video limit or something like that to, you know, the sky's the limit kind of thing. And this guy just totally took advantage of that format and started producing these videos that were an hour, an hour and a half. They were kind of like pseudo spiritual self-help talk videos. And, but the New York times, the, the interviewers, the producers, they're following, or they're interviewing this guy and telling his story. And he kind of went from, uh, you know, dropping out of college and not really having a lot of friends, not having a lot of direction to just getting on YouTube. And his consumption went from four hours to six hours a day to eight hours a day. I mean, he was really um, slowly becoming radicalized by YouTubers. So pretty interesting. Um, and also it's it's good to balance my content and remind myself, uh, you know, because I just like you, I don't think there's anything we love more than content, not even our wives. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, (laughs) That's pretty good, Brett. Um, But it's it's good to just be reminded sometimes uh, that there's more to life than just content. You know, there's talking about content, there's uh, (laughs) being a contentologist. (laughs) so uh yeah but besides uh, that's that's about it gotta figure out what that show is called so we can link it in the show notes okay i can do that all right let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll get into some content content the content clearinghouse is brought to you by best maps ever they make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all if you want to visit every national park in the united states climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've been. (gasps) Since you brought it up, 
I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Hey, welcome back to the Content Clearing House, everyone. Uh, Brett, Josh. I think everyone that's uh, <laughs> everyone that clicked on the podcast know what you're going to talk about today, but I cannot wait to hear you talk about Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, I already have a feeling this is going to be one of our longest episodes to date. Uh, this is one of my favorite pieces of content. Uh, so Calvin and Hobbes. For those that do not know or aren't familiar with this beautiful piece of work, is a comic strip featuring a beloved and iconic duo like Brett and Josh. That's just another iconic duo I can think of. You've all heard of us. (laughs) Uh, So Calvin is described as a precocious, mischievous, and adventurous six-year-old. And his stuffed tiger, Hobbs, is a sardonic but lovable partner. Now, Hobbs is seen uh, by everyone except Calvin as an inanimate stuffed animal. When they're alone together, Hobbs springs to life as an anthropomorphic tiger. And I'm very glad that I got that word right, because anthropomorphic and anthropomorphize, those are words that come up surprisingly often in my life and I just always struggle to pronounce them. <laughs> you <What>? probably <laughs> why are these coming? Oh Brett, you're good at pronouncing everything though. Papyrus, uh, papyrus, scrotum, 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 mosquito, all Brettisms. So uh what why is anthropomorphize coming up so much in your life? I have no idea. It just it seems to come up a lot when Bree and I are talking about things. I think we, I think we like anthropomorphizing different objects and pretending they have personalities. But I, I can't think of any specific cases of this. Mm, but it is it is funny. <laughs> I like it. All right. Um. So the fact that Hobbes has this dual nature of being, on the one hand, a non-living toy in the context of the quote-unquote objective reality of this comic strip's world, um, meaning when others are around, that isn't Calvin. They, they see him as this toy. And then on the other hand, he's a thinking and living, animated, hilarious character in the subjective reality of Calvin's imagination. That dualism or that dual nature are, is really representative of the comic strip. Because the majority of the strip is seen through Calvin in the lens of his imagination. And this is not only really fun, but it is a genius device for creative storytelling. Um, so we've talked about Futurama. That was that was you that um, we've talked about just like how many possibilities you can have when you just have like a limitless storytelling format like science fiction. Yeah, the I love in Futurama, like they really wrote themselves an out for almost anything with the head in a jar concept that they use. They could, you know, it's set in the future, but they could still have any modern day celebrity on the show since, you know, they're all just heads preserved in jars. It's like such a good uh, 
that's just like such a good device in Futurama. Right. Uh, so this this is kind of how I it just came up for me um, when I was reminiscing and and doing quote unquote doing research by just laying around reading Calvin and Hobbes best research ever. Um, I think anything is possible or within the realm of possibilities for this comic to explore when it you're it's just like the imagination of a six year old. So that's something I really love about this idea. Um, and I mean, Bill Watterson uses it to its full advantage. He explores all kinds of tedious aspects of Calvin's life, like going to school, doing homework, even lots of, um, a lot of, uh, kind of gags that involve him when he's trying to go to sleep and there's like monsters under the bed and he's talking about the monsters or talking to the monsters. I mean, all these like sort of, uh, things that would be mundane, like going to sleep, through his perspective, it means just like something ridiculous happening or something crazy or some idea to explore. And some of some of this like imagination kind of taken to the extreme are explored with his alter egos. A few of my favorite uh, is Spaceman Spiff for oh, his man. otherworldly Spaceman adventures. Spiff. <laughs> Dude, that that it just influenced so much of my childhood because i just like grew up drawing comics and you know like all these like space characters and everything and i wanted to be like a comic book artist when i grew up but when i looked back at it later i realized like man i was just totally ripping off calvin (laughs) and Hobbes and home alone the whole time everything i drew was like some sort of some sort of riff on what they were already doing a calvin and Hobbes home alone crossover that is those are my two jams that's that's a strange (laughs) thought those don't sound like they would reside in the same universe i mean there there was a um sunday page that i just recently saw today that was you know I'm, i'm very hesitant to describe like um any specific comic strips because i really want listeners to go out if they're not familiar with calvin Hobbes, or if they are to just revisit it but there is not a single bit of script. There's no um, communication. It's all images, and it's the beautiful color images for the Sunday that uh, the Sunday um, episodes or the the uh, Sunday comics. And this one in particular was a spaceman Spiff, and he's sitting at his desk in school, but he's imagining that he's flying through space and this and that. And then Miss Wormwood, the teacher, kind of wakes him out of his imaginative reverie (laughs) and then he like is like kind of shocked for a second and then he drifts off in a daydream again but but now he's a dinosaur in like jurassic park it's one of the tropes that it that is it explored a lot but in this particular one not a single word of dialogue it was just images and it was hilarious and it was beautiful um but so spaceman spiff is one um I also like solving a mystery with tracer bullets. Those are good. <laughs> That's I've good got too. I've got like eight the noir episodes. One's lead and the rest are bourbon. Yeah, the they're like black and white, very elaborately drawn. Um, I just, oh, they're amazing. The way that he like explores different, not only like storytelling devices, but the art itself changes when he kind of toys with this like imagination of Calvin's 
Yeah, it really leaves him all these openings to just, uh, yeah, to like have a noir story or have something set in the prehistoric era or a space story. And then, you know, like all, all of those things make sense logically within the Calvin and Hobbes universe. And right. you never like question that all these things exist within the same comic. Right, exactly. You get what I'm saying. That's why you're the pro. Oh, I get it, man. Yeah, I was... Um, uh, yeah. I pretty much grew up with like these omnibus books of Calvin and Hobbes and like f- thumbing through them, you know, it's like mostly black and white, but then every like eighth page or something would be like, one of the Sunday strips and it'd be like a full page color thing. And it mm-hmm. was so hard to appreciate it when I was young, just how much of like an artistic master Bill Watterson was. But now looking back at it, like everything is just so refined. Everything is just, it's so elegant. The line work is perfect. And then all the water coloring that he does in the backgrounds, you know, it's like, it's all like, it's like Leonardo style artwork. It's right. It's, it's like a, a total, it's like a total expert at their craft creating something that it's almost like too good to exist. It's something that Calvin and Hobbes will never exist again, in my opinion. Well, that's that's one of the um, interesting things about his career as well is he was pushing the boundaries of what was possible with the format because they had you know these newspapers. I mean, he was he was syndicated to thousands at one point over thousands of uh, different publications, and they had this sort of template that they wanted you to stick to, and he was very vocal and spent his whole career fighting against how restrictive this template was and how it was they they seemed to be becoming more and more restrictive as time went on because they were just reducing uh comics you know and he felt like there was a really important need for them whereas these short-sighted publishers didn't really feel the same way but some of his sunday works and and he talks about this in length like in the 10th anniversary edition which has it's kind of like a director's commentary um, but it's, you know, it's a curated, curated collection of his comics. And I think it was celebrating the 10th anniversary of when they retired the comics. So it was the 20th anniversary of when the comic was first published, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but he, um, I think it's in that, that he talks about, and there's some amazing Sunday, you know, the Sunday was, was like a, like a half page panel, but he would push the boundaries and the art would go out of the panels and it was like toying with perspective. And I mean, he was, he was like really fighting the man in his own artistic way. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. It may have been after the fact, like through those omnibus collections, but just about how, how like almost tortured like his process was. And I remember hearing about Bill Watterson going on sabbatical. You know, I'd never even heard of that as a kid. But, you know, when I realized, like, how much work he put into it and the fact that it's, like, this guy needs a break from dealing with these syndications. He needs to go, like, on a retreat, you know, to a up in the mountains somewhere to get away from it all. It really, it really puts into perspective, like, what he was doing with his artwork. Like, he was really bringing something that you know it was an important thought from his soul and putting it on the paper it wasn't just like this mindless like Kathy or whatever the other crappy comics were that were <laughs> always in the in the in the newspaper i remember with calvin and hobbs i would just 
skip over everything, read Calvin and Hobbes and Farside, and then toss it out. That was like, those were the only two things worth reading, in my opinion, at that time. Well, actually, it's interesting that you brought that up um, because I don't think I had sabbaticals in my uh, outline, but he did he did take two sabbaticals and he was only one of just a very few um, couple of cartoonists, I think two or three that were actually popular and successful to get sabbatical from their syndicate because it just wasn't very um, common. And he, you really had to be like the best of the best to even have the power to say, I'm taking a sabbatical. It just wasn't something that was really done. And I think even Charles Schultz um, ended up um, like, I don't know, giving him shit in his own like special cartoonist way. He called it like puzzling or I don't remember exactly what was said, but uh, it, I mean, it is very interesting. And I don't think it was the actual work or the art, but I think it was all the pressure and all the syndication and all the bullshit basically that came along with how, how popular and successful his art was. Um, but we'll yeah, get into a little nothing bit more harder of, of Watterson. Well, there's nothing harder as an artist to have, you know, someone like giving you notes and telling you like what you can and can't do. And you're trying to express yourself and, you know, through your writing or through your hand-drawn artwork, like all these things are just so personal. And I imagine like working within that system had to be for some of the other creators, just like some of the soul, most soul crushing stuff because, you know, I I've worked as a graphic designer and I know that when you put everything you have into a design and then you get back feedback from the customer, like, well, I don't know, could you make it more black and white, but still have all the color in it? And you're just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you don't even, <laughs> why don't you just leave all the art to somebody who knows what they're doing? And so I imagine, you know, him fighting the syndication had to be like, just take, it had to take so much out of him and have having oh, to feel like, potentially in the beginning, like where he's having to work around their rules and regulations, you know, it's in, in his mind, I can imagine him thinking like how much worse this, this is going to make the end product. And that's a hard thing to, to face as an artist. Right. Definitely. Um, especially seeing the changes that he saw. I mean, I, like you said, um, one of the last great comic strips because the medium has just changed. Print journalism has changed. It's, it's not really uh, something I think that can that has like the same enjoyment for me personally. Seeing it online, like I did try to like as a kid when the internet became popular, I tried to like make a switch over to web comics, and I I just oh, never it is not like the same. It isn't. I just I kind of like got out of reading comics, and I was a big. Um, follower of you know several comic strips but there's just something about these like paperback calvin and hobbs books and i i have one of the like complete hardcover you know it's every calvin hobbs ever published in one and it's a great collector's piece i mean it comes in this like huge you know case and there's like two giant books i think there is a soft cover version now but i think the panels are printed a little bit smaller but i mean if you get um, like right here on the desk, I got it's a magical world or you get the essential Calvin and Hobbes or the indispensable, the authoritative or the 10th anniversary edition, or even, you know, the smaller printed books. Um, I mean, there you can, 
you know, on a cold day, you can have a hot chocolate or you can have a cup of coffee and you can just lay in bed and you can just basically curl up with these books. And it just brings a lot of satisfaction. It brings a lot of comfort. It brings a lot of nostalgia. And I just don't get that feeling if you got an iPad or you got your, you know, you got your laptop in bed and you're just like perusing web comics online. Plus YouTube would pop up with a relevant cat video that you like and you'd get stuck for eight hours and <laughs> end up know being the dangers of <laughs> the having YouTube of- <laughs> window open while you're reading comics. Exactly. Yeah. I grew up uh, collecting comic books and then, you know, now in my adulthood, there were some books that I kept hearing like rave reviews about like Superman, Red Sun, where Superman, instead of crashing in America, he crashes in Russia. So he's, you know, he's like fighting to protect the Russian way instead of the American way. And I never read that before. So I did read it digitally on my phone and I can appreciate the writing, but it's just, it's just not the same as having like, you know, having that newspaper print feel of the pages and like flipping them and being really, really careful with the book so you don't damage the spine. Anyone that's collected comic books would be probably familiar with that type of behavior reading a book. It's just not the same. Most reading, I am a huge proponent for Kindle, but not when it comes to reading a, a visual format like that. Yeah, when I was um, doing research for this episode, actually, I, I wanted to um, you know be able to kind of have an understanding of how many books they, uh, Bill Watterson had published since that is the only way to really uh, get your Calvin and Hobbes fix since it obviously is not in, in newspapers anymore. Um, and when I was looking on the internet, I saw that you can get these books on Kindle. I'm like, no, don't do, don't do that. Um, yeah, that's, and, and I'm, that's a bastardization of the format. Oh, yeah. Well said. Well, when Bree and I moved into the Airstream, I mean, we pared down all of our things. I mean, we really um, streamlined most of our stuff. And that included books. And if you remember, and this is when I was still kind of part-time at the wind tunnel, I like gave away a bunch of books. I sold a bunch of books. and and uh, But my Calvin and Hobbes books, I mean, I still had things that I stored at Bree's parents' house or my dad's house where I'm staying right now for the winter. And the, my Calvin and Hobbes books, like, they're not going anywhere. Like, these are cherished possessions. And I, some of my books, uh, unlike you, I wasn't that careful. And, I mean, the, the spine is taped up and there's, like, you know, a torn page here and there. And But, I mean, they're, they're just, like, cherished possessions for me. And I, I just kind of feel like this reverence whenever I, uh, <laughs> whenever I hold my Calvin Hobbes books in my hands. And I, I've got quite a few of them. I think there's 19 total out there. Um, they're going to have like 11, they're going to find those in a, uh, in a piece of pottery in a cave one day after <laughs> yeah. the, after the nukes go off, it'll be like one of the few surviving pieces of written material from our era. Oh man. Brett's Calvin and Hobbes collection. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, so back to some of my favorite strips uh, and some of my favorite escapades of our dynamic duo. Calvin's grotesque snowmen and bizarre snow art are a favorite of mine. Um, these lead to a lot of social commentary, which really is in a lot of his 
uh, com- uh, comics, but he, Bill Watterson really likes to poke fun at art critics and art snobs, which it really seems to be like a favorite uh, theme of his. In one story, Calvin says, any dumb kid can build a snowman, but it takes a genius like me to create art. In another <laughs> storyline, <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes claim to be the sole guardians of high culture, and in another, Hobbes admires Calvin for putting his artistic integrity above marketability, which causes Calvin to reconsider and make an ordinary snowman. Um, as a kid that loved playing in the snow, and as an adult, I still love playing in the snow. Um, I've just always loved these story arcs, and I've just always loved like seeing the seasonal changes in the in the comics, but poking fun at like arc art critics i mean this as you know a young child or like a preteen i it was like something i didn't really understand but i found really interesting and i like wanted to learn more and just through like contextual clues i could find the humor in it i could find the comedy and i could kind of learn about this like highfalutin culture and the ridiculousness of it and i feel like that was maybe my first introduction to the existence of like a world like that. It is really interesting too, that he was doing that through a comic strip, which I'm sure to all the art critics is, you know, just considered to be like the lowest form of artwork. You know, it's just like not even on their, not even on their scale, you know, and and he's doing these things like these iconoclastic moves through uh, through the comic strips, just like elevating the entire art form. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> it's funny that you said that because I have another strip example here that doesn't involve snowman or uh, his snow art, but it is one of his kind of like art critiques where Calvin is showing Hobbes different pieces of art and he's saying, okay, now this is a painting. It's moving, spiritually enriching, sublime, high art. And then he shows him the comic strip, vapid, juvenile, commercial <laughs> hack work, low art. And then he shows him this other thing and says, a painting of a comic strip panel, sophisticated irony, philosophically challenging, high art. And then Hobbes asks, now suppose I draw a cartoon of a painting of a comic strip. And Calvin replies, sophomoric, intellectually sterile, low art. <laughs> like <laughs> so good. So good. So as uh, I was, sure you could hear me smiling the whole time. <laughs> I can. It really is genius. And like I said, I, I hate to bring up specific strips because you just lose so much in talking about them. It there are really thousands is. of them, though. Uh, right. That is true. That is true. Um, so as as I was uh, realizing that this is like one of the aspects to Calvin and Hobbes I really enjoy, I kind of made the disturbing connection that a contentologist is sort of a lowbrow art critic in a way. So I uh, want to get we're this pretty lowbrow. <laughs> we do not know what we're talking about. Well, I just want to get it off my chest. Now I want to get this out there. Please alert the board members of the society of global contentology. If I ever start using the term avant-garde to describe anything unironically, <laughs> I'll let him know. Okay. I'll write myself an email. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that's interesting about this, though, about Watterson exploring these um, subjects is how 
uh, passionately, he protected his artistic integrity by not allowing merchandising. That I mean, that was a huge part of his me, story arc. Let me get this straight. Those Calvin peeing on the Ford <laughs> stickers are not official merchandise? We'll get into that, but no. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so to changing gears a little bit, another one of my favorite story arcs in Calvin and Hobbes is different machines made out of cardboard boxes. Transmogrifier. So, that was one of my favorites. We had a flying time machine. We had a, a duplicator so he could delegate chores and homework to a clone. Um, the transmogrifier transmogrifier led to, I think, one of the best lines from Hobbes where he said, that's amazing what they do with cor- corrugated cardboard these days. <laughs> <laughs> amazing joke writing. So good. And uh, something I like about this is Calvin just changes the box's functions by writing whatever it is on the side. I mean, it's just genius. That's that's the stuff that I did as a kid and now do that with my daughter because of Calvin Hobbes. Like specifically anytime I build a spaceship out of corrugated cardboard now, I'm just like, oh man, this (laughs) this is totally a callback to whenever I was 13 years old. Totally. And you, it like sticks with you even as an adult. I mean, these storylines, these messages, these like kind of thought provoking, uh, hot takes on art critics. I mean, it, it really sticks with you. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's and crazy I was to hear all this from you and then it to, it to remind me how much of my influence came from Calvin Hobbes, like all these yeah. things that you're bringing up. It's just like a trip down memory lane of like, when I was in junior high and how much just my appreciation of jokes or the kind of art I liked or how much I love cardboard, all of it came from, <laughs> from reading these books. Your amazement at what corrugated cardboard can really do. <laughs> it really is amazing, Brett. Have you seen what happens when you write transmogrifier <laughs> on the side of a box? I actually haven't. I guess that's something to explore if I ever have kids. You got nothing um, else to do during this lockdown. <laughs> that's true. We're trying to adopt a pet right now. So that's kind of like getting a kid. I imagine yeah, it's pretty stick similar. Stick to that. If that doesn't work <laughs> out, play with a box. Perfect. Never too old. Um, when I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly when I first got into Calvin and Hobbes. Obviously, it was not in the newspaper by the time I got hooked. Uh, I think I was about seven years old when it ended. It ended in 1995. I'm guessing I have a really bad memory when it comes to like my childhood for for some reason. I, it's probably something I need to take up with my therapist and not on the podcast. But I think I was about 11 or 12 when I first uh, started reading Calvin and Hobbes, and I was just hooked from the get-go. And I think you've kind of brought this up. One of the reasons I personally think it really struck me and why it really sticks with me even well into adulthood, and I'm sure it will be a lifelong interest and passion of mine, I think I saw for the first time what real quality was and you know what something what something was when it can just like transcend the art form or it's just something so, so good that you can't stop thinking about it. I mean, it's, it's deep, man. 
Yeah. It's not just it's not just something to be written off by art critics, you know. It there really is a lot to Calvin and Hobbes and it's you know, it's the kind of thing that like makes you look at your real life in different ways. Definitely. Um so quality I think is one of those things that's really difficult to define. Um, have you ever heard me talk about Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance? Yes, but okay, you should so, uh, refresh me and the audience. So it's a Robert Persig book where it's kind of half autobiographical, half embellished fiction, but it it's about this guy, Robert Persig, the author that loses his mind because he can't stop thinking about what quality is. Somebody, I think if I remember correctly, I haven't read the book in a long time, but somebody asks him uh, or like makes a passing comment. Like I think he was a teacher at the time or a professor. And they're like, well, I hope you're teaching quality in your class or quality things or quality content, something like that. And he just like couldn't stop thinking about what 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 does it mean to like have quality? What does it mean to have value to be, you know, and he went down this, this like spiraling hole and this descent into uh, madness ended up um, going into some kind of, I don't know, um, some kind of, uh, what do you call those things? I don't want to say, I don't want to say a nut house. (laughs) I mean, you can say that. An institution. He was okay. he was put in some kind of institution. I mean, it, it was bad enough. Padded room. <laughs> a padded room. It was bad enough they that he had um, the brain shocking treatment. What's that called? Electroshock. Electroshock therapy. therapy. Yeah. He he was like required by law to have that. I mean, it was oh really it, it was this inc- it was this whole crazy thing. Anyway, what ended up happening is he created this metaphysical philosophy, the metaphysics of quality, where he put together all of these kind of different religions and philosophies, and he basically decided, and he makes this argument over the course of two very good books, but the second, Lila, is, is like pretty hard to digest. It's pretty insane. But he says quality is the cutting edge of reality and the driver of all everything, ideas, life evolution, everything in the universe comes out of quality. So with that in mind, I, I, I've tried to like, you know, the whole beauty is in the eye of the beholder debate. I don't want to lose my mind going down the quality, the quality hole more than I've already kind of lost my mind in quarantine. But I decided I needed to have some kind of scale of like good and bad quality within the comic strip world because I do feel like comics more than a lot of other art forms can really run the gamut on a pretty wide spectrum. So in my personal top three, Calvin and Hobbes obviously is number one for me. I also really like Peanuts by Charles Schultz who was an inspiration for Calvin and Hobbes. And I also very much like the far side with Gary Larson. Two of my three favorites also. Very good. Far side, I think is notable for being a single panel comic. Um, and that's to make it on my, on my top three list. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) 
So can um, I take a can I take a a short detour and tell you my favorite far side panel? Oh, shoot me with it. That's why we're here. That's why we made this podcast for these sidebars. It's all, all leading up to this. So <laughs> it's a it's a picture looking over the shoulder of a pilot out the window down at a desert island, and there's a there's a guy waving to the pilot, and it, in the in the sand it says help, except part of the P is washed away, and then the 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 uh, quote at the bottom is. Uh, go ahead and scratch that. Actually, it looks like it says health. It's <laughs> so good. I love how there's like so little context and it's just like with one panel, Gary Larson could put together it's such amazing. a good story about the this guy is never going to get rescued off this desert island because his sign was misspelled. It's so perfect. <laughs> It's amazing. It really is a it really is a great uh, comic, and it actually ended the same year as Calvin and Hobbes, nineteen ninety five. The same year that oh, OJ man. was found guilty. I don't uh, think it was a coincidence. <laughs> no wonder everyone missed out on these two comics ending. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So now we got to touch. We got to make this range here. Uh, the worst. I imagine we have the same worst comic strip on our list Brett, anyone that's ever read the sunday newspaper has the worst comic strip the same worst that we do it's the only worst that exists okay i know we have a delay on our skype call but let's on the count of three let's try to say it at the same time one two three Garfield. family circus oh. <laughs> oh, <you're- laughs> yeah of course <laughs> family circus that's the one. Oh, so bad um, I also have Marmaduke and the Lockhorns. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Never even heard of that. Oh, terrible. Um, I would put, it's interesting you brought up Garfield. Where would that be on your imaginary um, quality spectrum that we've created here? Actually, I really liked Garfield. I used to collect Garfield memorabilia. And I know everyone you will be very impressed with this, but... Uh, I had it displayed at the local library in their little display box out front because I had so many Garfield toys. Oh, wow. That's (laughs) so (laughs) impressive. Very interesting. I Um, I really liked Garfield, though. But what's even better is Garfield without Garfield. Have you seen that? It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. It's like an existential nightmare. (laughs) It really is. It's so much better than Garfield was by itself. But I know Garfield was pretty great. I, I feel like... I feel like Garfield, for me, is mediocre at best. It's like somewhere in the middle to lower range. But you know who gives absolutely zero fucks about my opinion? Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, because he is worth eight hundred million dollars. So he doesn't there care. You go. What, he doesn't care what I think. Uh, which kind and of I think bring... that with my, I think with my current sensibilities, though, I wouldn't like Garfield as much as I did when I was eight. you were a real uh real precocious reader i was you were i just learned to read (laughs) very high threshold to impress there yeah um so speaking speaking of money uh no story about calvin and hobbes is really complete without talking about the creator that we've mentioned a couple times bill watterson very interesting guy, notoriously shy, 
I actually, in doing a little research for this episode, I mean, he's a, he's a recluse. I found him on a Time Magazine's top 10 list of the most reclusive celebrities, which that's a weird list to make, but okay, I'll take it. Um, I'm sure he'll really appreciate the content clearinghouse hunting him down. <laughs> so Bill Watterson was born in D.C., moved to Chagrin Falls, which is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, when, interestingly enough, he was about the same age as Calvin in the comics, six years old. He became interested in drawing um, and comics at a very young age, actually about the same time he started reading Garfield. (laughs) 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 You precocious young man, you. So... (laughs) Um, so he actually did draw his first comic when he was eight. Um, and then he wrote a letter to Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, when he was about 10 years old, I believe. He was actually thrilled and surprised to get a letter back from Charles Schultz. Apparently, it made a very big impression on him. So really, I guess you could say that Charles Schultz is uh, is to thank for Calvin and Hobbes. So Bill Watterson got his Bachelor of Arts degree in political science at Kenyon College, also in Ohio. Graduated in 1980, hired at the Cincinnati Post, but because he had grown up in Cleveland and attended college in central Ohio, he wasn't really um, familiar with the Cincinnati political scene. So he was fired after a year, and his I mean, it was before his contract was up. And I guess he talks about this this time as being like a very difficult, challenging, and instrumental time for him in his life, which really, he was still pretty young at this point. He was in his early to mid-20s, uh, so it wasn't like he was, you know, slaving away and put through the ringer for, for decades to, like, find himself. But, he, you know, he does talk about this time as being very pivotal. So after he was fired from that, he joined an ad agency and was designing and creating grocery ads. He was working on other projects. He was doing some freelancing. As far as I can find, he was making good money, but he was not satisfied. He was not fulfilled. He decided he kind of wanted to go his own direction. He published Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, It was first published in November of 1985. And... um, also, the characters, I, I don't know if this is important or not, but I like it. And I also wrote a paper on this in college, like a 10-page paper in an ethics class. But oh, Calvin, nice. yeah, it's a great subject for uh, academia. It really is. It's deep. Um, so Calvin was named after John Calvin, Protestant reformer. And Hobbes was named after the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. And even Calvin or uh, Watterson said that Calvin was named for a 16th century theologian who believed in predestination and Hobbes was named for a 17th century philosopher with a dim view of human nature. And that was my paper was comparing the comic strips characters with kind of the real life people they were named after. So at the early age of 27, Watterson found a national audience through syndication in 35 papers the first one being published in November 1985, like I said. Now, syndication, for people that might not know, is basically distribution from an entity, from a company that owns some of the rights, the reprint rights, the grant permissions. So this can be 
editorial opinions. It can be political cartoons, advice columns, uh, you know, Dear Abby type stuff, but also comic strips are all syndicated. By 1987, two years later, the number had grown uh, in terms of a syndication, 300 newspapers. It was the fastest growing comic strip of the 1980s. And he was actually awarded the National Cartoonists Society's Rubin Award in 1986 and in 1988. And I am told by some, this is the highest honor among cartoonists. Very similar to the most Netflixed and chilled award for contentologists like you and I. (laughs) I'm very Netflixed and chilled right now. Oh, yeah. Lucky guy. So um, this was Water, uh, Watterson's second Rubin Award, the, the one that he won in 1988, made him the youngest cartoonist ever to be honored and only the sixth person to win twice. Wow. So, yeah. So the strip became very popular very quickly. He was shell-shocked and taken aback with this newfound celebrity status. And he just like seemed to not understand at all why people would want to know about him. And he just wanted people to enjoy his work, his content and, and like not be curious about who he is. But I, this kind of bring, brings up like a discussion and it's something I want to ask you about. Why is it that we seem to have so much trouble separating content from its creator? I mean, right now I think it's, I think it's a subject of discussion, uh, unfortunately, be, because of disturbing things. Michael Jackson, R. Kelly. I mean, these are these are all things in the public consciousness right now. And we just like, you know, I mean, I feel weird about listening to Michael Jackson music, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think with specifically performers like that, it's hard to separate them from their art because – like a rock star is so visible. You know, you everyone has seen hours of clips of Michael Jackson and probably R. Kelly as well. You know, the, there's like the visual component with their music. Uh, it's hard to not picture them when you watch or when you hear, you know, Smooth Criminal. It's hard to not picture, picture Michael Jackson. And since humans are such visible creatures it's hard for one picture to not lead to another. So when I picture Michael Jackson from hearing his music, it's hard for me to not take the next step to think about like the stories that you hear about Neverland Ranch. And the same thing with R. Kelly, about like hearing an R. Kelly song, The Closet, and then you can't, um, you, you can't help but imagine what you've seen on the R. Kelly documentaries. It's just it's also con- it's also connected through the visual image. Now, where, where I think it's easier to disconnect is something like Harvey Weinstein with some movie created by the Weinstein Corporation or whatever his company is called, because he's not he's not exactly like the face of that movie existing. Like his name may be on it, but there's so many other creators and contributors and actors and all these things that go into a movie that's created by, you know, Weinstein corporation that it's, it doesn't necessarily all fall in his lap. Interesting. Well, I mean, 
I think you make a really good point that I hadn't really considered about like R. Kelly or Michael Jackson because their art form is almost their, it's like their personalities and their showmanship and being recognized and being recognizable and they are like in the forefront. Um, I mean, I, I don't think Harvey Weinstein is really an example because he he, I don't feel like he was a content creator or an artist himself. He just seems like he was like a producer, but I don't know. He's a facilitator. About that. Yeah, but there were, go. you know, there were still people that were calling for the uh, the boycotting of anything produced by his company. Wow, and really? I could definitely see that point of view. But I just uh-huh. think, for me personally, you know, like I'm not taking a stand for any other human on the planet. But I think that for me personally, it's easier for me to separate that than it is from someone like a rock star who's, you know, essentially a a one man show. Yeah. But I I do think there's a difference though with wanting to understand more about someone who you see as like a quiet genius, like Bill Watterson. There's a different, a different take and a different reason for wanting to seek out information about him and understand, you know, like where this amazing, creation that has brought so much joy to your life came from like the the kind of mind that would bring that into the world. That's, that's a much different feeling in my mind than feeling like kind of gross when I hear a Michael Jackson song, you know? Right. Well, you know, this also came up because I'm watching so much community right now and I found myself reading about Dan Harmon, the creator of community just like while i'm watching the show just you know finding threads on reddit ask me anything's and whatnot and i'm just you know i'm like asking myself okay why why is it that i want to know about dan Harmon? why is learning this making me appreciate community more what you know what other content does he make i mean i found out that uh rick and morty a show that i have been told to to watch and i just like i don't know it just it doesn't look like something that would appeal to me but when i realized that dan Harmon was also the creator of rick and morty i'm like man I, I really like community and even if they're very different types of shows just based on the the fact that i like this piece of content and it has the same creator it makes me want to check out this other piece of content and but i just don't i just don't understand like why i have that drive but i think it is very um, I think it's very common and it's interesting that Bill Watterson didn't really seem to understand that people had this drive with how much understanding of art that he has and human nature and human nature. Right. Yeah. I well, think, you know, like the, uh, <clears throat> like wanting to understand the artists and wanting to wanting to feel like you're closer to them. I think it's a reason that a lot of podcasts exist too. I mean, there are a lot of famous people who start their own podcasts and people, you know, eat that stuff up because they want to know what's going on in this person's mind that this person that they admire on stage or they, you know, they love their writing or something. And I think it's very common human reaction to want to feel closer to your idols and want to understand possibly how you could be more like them. Yeah, maybe that's it. You know, I it's it's interesting. Um, well, one of the reasons that I really wanted to like go into his background a little bit in depth, like biography style, is I think a big part of why Bill Watterson is such a confounding and 
admirable and strange and curious content creator is his refusal to license his extremely popular characters for merchandise. He was constantly pressured throughout his entire Calvin and Hobbes career from Universal Press Syndicate, which was his comics syndication. Um, but he, he received pressure from a lot of different uh, areas of his life to merchandise his work for that sweet, sweet cash. But he just wouldn't do it. He felt that it would cheapen his comic. He felt that it was cheap. It would cheapen his characters. Now we talked this is about like ja- what, uh-huh. this is like what Red Bull does. You know, they don't sell any Red Bull merchandise. The only time that you ever see a Red Bull helmet or hat or something is on like a sponsored Red Bull athlete. And it really does bring like, a sense of elitism when you see that logo and the same way that you, mm. you feel that kind of elitism when you see like Calvin and Hobbes, cause you know what you're looking at. If it's printed on the page, it's official. If it's anything else, it's basically trash. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that about Red Bull, but that's true. I, I haven't really seen like Red Bull shirts, Red Bull hats, unless it's like a sponsored base jumping athlete. That's just like, a badass that you know is wearing that Red Bull hat, and you're like, dude, that thing's sweet. And you, that's, you can only—that's the only place you'll see it. You can only get that by being a super, super top level athlete. That's awesome. Yeah, top tier adventure athlete. That's really cool. Well, we we brought up Jim Davis earlier, the creator of Garfield. Now, he, and my he literally, <laughs> yes, in your memorabilia collection that you're so proud of. <laughs> get over it. God, what are you nine? Uh, I wish. (laughs) So what's kind of hilarious about this, like Jim Davis, he, he had no shame. He (laughs) created Garfield with making me feel bad about liking him. He, he literally said his intention was to quote, come up with a good marketable character. Jim, you did a good job. Uh, (laughs) One of the estimates of the value of licensing revenue that was lost by Watterson by not allowing the the merchandising was three hundred to four hundred million dollars. Now, uh, and we you know we compared that to Jim Davis. Garfield's brought in his personal net worth is eight hundred million dollars. I think the like annual income of the Garfield brand is somewhere between like seven hundred fifty million and one billion annually it's insane i mean there's real money in this um but you know bill watterson is still doing okay his estimated net worth in 2020 is 110 million dollars plus uh whatever whatever cash amount he lost in giving up licensing is made up for in being a straight up legend like red bull that really is that's a legendary choice and that he's able to succeed monetarily without it is so respectable for sure it really is um so there there are a few exceptions to the no merchandising and i just think it's kind of interesting for calvin hobbs fans out there so really quick there's two 16 month calendars there's a t-shirt for a smithsonian exhibit about comics there was a textbook called teaching with calvin and hobbs that apparently is the most difficult piece of official memorabilia to find. And then there's, as you mentioned, serious, <laughs> serious <laughs> counterfeit items because, you know, there was no official licensing. 
Um, Watterson at one point uh, very wryly commented, uh, I clearly miscalculated how popular it would be to show Calvin urinating on a Ford logo. (laughs) 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 But he also said that would be his ticket to immortality. (laughs) Fucking legend, Bill Watterson. (laughs) Oh, man, we salute you. (laughs) We salute you, sir. Now, we humans, if you even are one, um, we like to display our likes, our dislikes with whatever clothes on our body, stickers on our cars, memorabilia displayed at the library. If you're a seven-year-old Josh or eight-year-old Josh, whatever. So buying mass-produced shit to express your individuality, come on, man, this is the American way. So the lack of Calvin and Hobbes stuff for a super fan like me is extremely distressing because I can't really connect with other Calvin and Hobbes fans just because I don't know who out there is a Calvin and Hobbes fan. We can't display our pride, but there is an peacock it. We can't, we can't peacock our, our fandom. Um, you're going to like this little story for you. And I don't know if you know about this, but uh, legendary skydiver that used to come into the wind tunnel a lot and do some coaching. I don't remember his last name, but Chad Ross. Is that right? He's a legend. Yeah, that's his name, right? Chad Ross? Yep. I really don't know him that well. Um, But I was working at the wind tunnel one day, and, uh, well, first, so there's this, I actually texted it to you before the show, but for our listeners, there is an extremely poignant Sunday page of uh, Calvin and Hobbes finding a dead bird on the ground and contemplating the fragile, temporary nature of our existence. It's it is. I mean, it will bring emotion to your to your heart for sure. And in the first panel, there's this beautifully drawn image of a the dead bird that Calvin Hobbes find. Now, Chad Ross, if I remember correctly, I think it's on his leg, but he has a very beautiful, detailed tattoo of this particular image of the bird on his leg, I think, or maybe his arm. Anyway, I recognized it immediately, being being such a fan. Brought it up. We had like an instant communication connection over it. We talked about our love of the comic. I mean, it really it was like a really cool moment of like, oh my god, I, you know, because you, and I just realized now looking back, there really is no way to tell uh, a Calvin and Hobbes fan apart unless you're sitting there reading the book. Um, so I, I mean, I personally don't have any tattoos. If I did, it would be something extremely meaningful like Chad's tattoo, maybe Calvin taking a piss on the Ford logo. <laughs> taking a pee on your belly button. <laughs> Did you Have you seen Chad's t- tattoo? Do you know yeah, what I'm talking about? Of course, of course, okay. yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's on his leg. And okay. uh, it is... It's like one of the best tattoos I've ever seen. And it, really it is. is like a... It is like an iconic Calvin and Hobbes image that any Calvin and Hobbes fan would recognize immediately. It's Definitely. great. So I do want to share one more anecdote before I before I wrap up. I'm a little hesitant to bring this up, but I just feel that the story must be told. It was during the 2014 Soccer World Cup, back when I was flying charter jets, 
uh, I was at a bar drinking with my friend who was also the captain and Bree, my wife had also flown out for, uh, just a quick visit. It was during one of her lay- layovers. This was in Florida. I can't remember exactly where I think it was in Tampa, but we were watching the game at a bar and I met a guy at the bar that worked for universal press syndicate. Of course I go into Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Watterson and blah, blah, blah. And this gentleman that I was talking to had met personally with Bill Watterson more than once to understand how significant this is. If I haven't already like made it clear how reclusive and, and just like, you know, exalted this guy is there's literally like two pictures of Bill Watterson on the internet. He declines most of his interview requests, despite some seriously epic attempts. One of them, was with this guy with the Washington Post who gave like a first edition of some book as an incentive to Bill Watterson's parents and then like passed along a message that he would wait in his hotel for as long as it took for Watterson to contact him. And of course, he got a call the next day from Bill Watterson's editor saying like, he's not coming, dude. Get out of here. Um, Watterson still lives in Cleveland or near that area with his wife which makes it very difficult to disprove my theory that he has not left Ohio since he was six years old. Um, He is so elusive, and this is true, that calls from major Hollywood figures interested in an adaptation of his work, including Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg, were never returned. <laughs> How do you oh, not man, call Steven move? How do you not call Steven Spielberg back? What the fuck? He's got in nothing a, to offer. In a twenty in a twenty thirteen interview about this, Watterson stated that he had zero interest in an animated adaptation and there was no upside for him in doing it, and he just never called him back. Um, so here I am at this bar. I've randomly just met somebody who has met Bill Watterson. And of course, I have to ask this guy what he was like. And all I got was that Bill was kind of an asshole. <laughs> I can so, imagine. He might be. <laughs> so I, this is kind of why I wanted to talk about separating the art from the artist. I think it's important to separate the content from the creator. The song Ignition Remix from R. Kelly I, I think it's really interesting. It's really entertaining for me personally, and I hope for others to explore the backstory of some of these amazing kind of once-in-a-lifetime minds and personalities behind our absolute favorite content. But you just need to be prepared if you go digging that you might find out that the genius behind your favorite piece of content might be kind of an asshole. And the reason I'm reluctant to bring this up, I mean, maybe maybe that's why he doesn't like meeting people is because of people like me or, you know, people kind of, he just wants to be left alone. And here we are bothering this guy, handing him books, talking to his parents, you know, cold calling him all the time, trying to catch him in Ohio where he never leaves. You know, I don't know. It's, it's um, like I said, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to put it out there, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. So I had to mention it. It's the curse of celebrity. So is there anything else before my conclusion that you want to, that you want to add? Well, 
I could run through this real quickly, but I found a complete list of the Calvin Ball rules. And (laughs) (laughs) if anyone, if anyone's familiar with Calvin Ball, you know that although all games of Calvin Ball are different, you make up the rules as you go along. Uh, the only consistency is that you cannot play it the same way twice. So let me just run through this as quickly as I can. I love uh, it. These are some of the, the key features and rules from pretty much every strip that uh, Calvin Ball appeared in. There are the wickets, the soccer balls, the flags, the masks, small signs with numbers, songs, zones, and sectors, the opposite zone, the very sorry song, the no song, the bonus box, croquet mallets, badminton, shuttlecocks, vortex spots, the invisible sector, volleyball, trees, buckets, poems, sacks, odd scoring, including Oogie to Boogie and Q to 12, the Calvin (laughs) Ball theme song, decrees, water balloons, hobby horse, the pernicious poem place, the bag flag zone, the secret base slow motion, the perimeter of wisdom, the corollary zone, and the babysitter flag. (laughs) Oh my God. That's amazing. (sighs) We tried to, I tried to play Calvin Ball and needless to say, it always just turned into us like, hey, you don't go play video games. (laughs) I can see that. Well, commonly cited as the last great newspaper comic, Calvin and Hobbes. Josh, it was an important part of my childhood, if I didn't make that clear. It's still an important part of my life. I would encourage anyone who is familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, dust off those books. You know, this is the great time to find some beauty during this difficult time. For those of you that are not familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, what is wrong with you? Get get on it. Get some books. I mean, this is truly once-in-a-lifetime level of quality uh, content, quality art. And one last message for William Boyd Watterson II. If by some fluke, in your now ultra-isolated inception-level layers of seclusion, if you hear this, Thank you, asshole, for sticking <laughs> for sticking to your guns and not selling out, for showing a young boy what adventure, friendship, and quality is, and for sharing your wit and your perspective, and for sharing your art with the world. Calvin and Hobbes, everybody. The greatest. That was I probably should have started right? with asshole. <laughs> no, that uh, was the perfect message. I... <laughs> hope he hears this uh like i always say brett your content pieces always make me think and there's a lot of stuff in there that i mean i read calvin and Hobbes for years and there's so much information in there that i had never heard before so thank you for that is very fantastic thank everyone so much for listening Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you hit us up with a rating on Apple Podcasts, that helps so much. The most valuable thing you as a listener can do for us is to share this show with one of your friends. We would love to get the content clearinghouse into the headphones of some new people. So please push it around social media. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at The Content Clearinghouse. And we will catch you here next week on The Content Clearinghouse. Content Clearinghouse.